Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's roundtable, where we take a look back at the big news of the week, and this was a historic week indeed. Never before in American politics have we seen a comeback like this one. In four days, Joe Biden going from his political deathbed to frontrunner in the Democratic primary with every other political rival but Bernie Sanders uh, and, oh yeah, Tulsi Gabbard dropping out and most of them endorsing him. So is it in the bag for Biden or will Bernie bounce back next week on March 10? Meanwhile, what confidence can the American people have in the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus with 205 cases now reported in the United States? Let's find out today's panel. Igor Babish, political reporter at HuffPost. Hello, Igor. Hey, how are you? See you. Welcome back. Dr. Niambi Carter is assistant professor of political science here at Howard University. Good morning, Bill. Nice to see you. And Sudeep Reddy, managing editor of Politico. Sudeep. Great to see you. Great to see you. And here we go. On a Friday morning, about March 6th, about 8.30 a.m., Igor, you've been around politics for a while. Have we ever seen anything like this week? Certainly not. Certainly not. I mean, for Joe Biden to do what he did, I don't think anybody saw it coming at least three or four days before last week. Um, I, I think it was a comeback. It was a huge comeback for him that uh, that he owes in large part to South Carolina and to African-American voters. And uh, there was a lot of doubts that he could pull it off, um, that some of the polls were showing him. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, going down in South Carolina, and he just he just did it. It was a pretty incredible sight. In South Carolina, with um, the big push from James Clyburn. Absolutely. I mean, I think. What What was it about African American Joe Biden that so was so attractive to African American voters in South Carolina, and then later in uh, Alabama? Um, I don't know how much of it is just Joe Biden is so attractive. I mean, clearly the proximity to Obama matters and, and Clyburn giving that endorsement, I think at the last minute was ex uh, super clutch for him. But I do think that Bernie Sanders has a lot of policies that black people like, but I just don't think he's been able to sell that he will be able to get any of it done. And I think Joe Biden looks like steady in a moment that is full of chaos politically and steady might be good. That might be all the revolution that people want. And you got to remember, South Carolina's older voters, they've been down this road several times. They've seen lots of people make big promises. And I think Joe Biden is a known quantity. So I think Bernie Sanders uh didn't sell it in, in South Carolina or Alabama. I mean, I think him not being there, Bloody Sunday wasn't 
the best optics. Uh, it wasn't a terrible calculation mm -hmm. on his part, but I don't think it looked good for him. Um, and I don't think he courted them as aggressively as he did Latino voters. We saw him do that to great effect in Nevada, in Texas, uh, in Iowa even. And I don't think he had the same sort of response to black voters. I think he, it seemed like he sort of just kind of gave up the ghost a little bit on black voters and, and moved along. Right. And Sadiq, it sort of all came together with Clyburn, South Carolina, and then Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke, and It was stunning, right? the speed at which all of this came together within uh, days, within days. And if you had forced me a year ago to make a prediction <laughs> on what would have happened in the Democratic primary, I would not have predicted 27 candidates stepping forward, and I would not have predicted Joe Biden being the, the winner at the end. I did sit here two months ago and make that prediction because it looked like uh, by default, Joe Biden was the only one who uh, who could claim to really r replicate the the approach of the Obama presidency. A lot of them probably could have done that, but he's the only one who's going to have Barack Obama standing by his side uh, if he wins the nomination, standing by his side month after month after month on the campaign trail, saying, "Remember me." This is the guy you want. And that's that's big. And that's something that all of the other candidates would not have been able to pull off in the same way, though they certainly would have had Barack Obama by his side. So, Igor, do you think, let's, let's be honest, Joe Biden is not the strongest, most articulate, most charismatic candidate. <laughs> yeah. uh, can he maintain, can he retain this lead? You know, it was interesting. I, I followed him around in New Hampshire, uh, which, you know, he didn't do so well in particularly because of the racial makeup of the state. But it, it also had something to do with his stump speech. And going to his events in New Hampshire, it's, it had the certain feeling of awake. You know, you would go 10 to 15 minutes without any kind of round of applause, no fire from him. Coming to South Carolina, he was a completely changed man. And I, and I wonder if, you know, uh, <laughs> Jim Clyburn had something to do with it. Uh, he was... He was telling the Biden campaign folks, something has to change. And um, when you saw his speech down there, his victory speech in South Carolina, he looked like a different different guy. And uh, if he can keep that up, I think he has a good shot of wrapping this up potentially this month. He looked like a different guy um, Saturday night in South Carolina, and he looked like a different guy in Los Angeles Tuesday night, mm -hmm. Super, Super Tuesday, um, and the following day, too. So... Um, one one thing, of course, uh, Nambi and, and, and Sadiq, is that um, the rap on Biden from the Sanders people is, oh, this is just the establishment, right, uh, getting behind you. And, and Biden kind of shot that down in his own way. Here he is. Let's talk about Mr. Sanders. He has been talking about your victory. He said, Joe is running a campaign which is obviously heavily supported by the corporate establishment. What do you think about that argument? <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Bernie, you got beaten by overwhelming support I have in the African-American community, Bernie. You got beaten because of suburban women, Bernie. You got beaten because of middle-class, hard-working folks out there, Bernie. You've raised a lot more money than I have, Bernie. Yeah, so he's saying it's a pretty, 
broad swath of Democrats. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that people have been concerned with is this language of the establishment. So if you're talking about the establishment, you're talking about the very people that Joe Biden is talking about, like black folks who are steadfast Democrats, black women who show up in huge numbers for this party election after election. And if they're bad, then what are you saying about your ability to lead these people? And I think that language is just not very helpful. And then what was sort of the cherry on top of all of this is that he makes this ad, Bernie Sanders, it, with Obama. It's like you don't get more establishment than that. So, you know, how dedicated uh, were you to this notion? Or was it a cute talking point just to get your base sort of riled up because you're going to lead some revolution of the party that you're not really a member of, but you expect the party to now bend and shape around you? It's a very odd way, I think, to, to present yourself. So when I saw that ad, I thought the first thought that came to my mind was, oh, Bernie Sanders is signaling that it's over. This is not an attempt to rescue his candidacy. This is actually his attempt to repair the damage he might have built, uh, created with other, uh, with, with establishment Democrats to say, we are together, people are going to have to come together. That looked like the first step to me. Maybe there was something else behind it, but you don't uh, go directly to imagery like that after bashing it for month after month after month without a recognition that it's going to look like absolute hypocrisy. Right. And, and Eva, I want to ask all of you actually about turnout because that's, that is the key. It was the key certainly back in 2008, was the key in 2018 again. Um, and everybody talked about, Bernie particularly said, look, you got the establishment, but I'm going to bring in this wave, this tidal wave yeah. of enthusiastic new young voters who are going to totally change the start the case. There was a lot of more turnout, a lot of increased turnout, a surge of turnout on Super Tuesday, but didn't go for Bernie, did it? It didn't. Uh, you know, it was one, one, the one candidate who actually brought out a multiracial, multi-class coalition was Joe Biden on Super Tuesday. You know, he 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 won uh, non-college educated white. Voters. He won college-educated white voters, uh, black Americans in the South, black Americans in the North. Uh, so his coalition looks a little bit more like something that Obama brought out in 2008 and 2012 than what Bernie Sanders and uh, has been talking about. And his core argument was that he was going to bring out all these new voters, and that just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and who would have thought that that would have been the case? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the I things so. that people talk about with young people. I mean, you know, young people are enthusiastic, but do they have the sort of wherewithal to last throughout this campaign? And I think that's one of the things that um, left people a little, left Bernie Sanders flat-footed um, and made his his play a little more difficult because doing the work of mobilizing voters, particularly new voters, people who don't engage a lot, is a lot more um, in time intensive than one election. So, Sudeep, this turnout, here's what I found most stunning about Super Tooth. This turnout and this surge of turnout came for Joe Biden in states where he didn't campaign, didn't spend a dime, didn't have a campaign office open, didn't have uh, an army of people on the ground. I mean, what the hell happened? You had so many Democratic voters who sat out the primary in 2016 who realized they needed to step up. This is what was part of the, the stunning surge in the final days. It was an, an anti-Sanders movement from people who worried about who could actually beat Donald Trump in November. That was ultimately what this election came down to. All of the new ideas, 
all of the debate about Medicare for all, the dozens and dozens of policy pitches, the I have a plan for that, all of that came down to one thing. And the big question for Joe Biden, if he finally secures the nomination, is what does he do with that sentiment? How does he package that to be the transition figure for the Democratic Party uh, as president to to uh, to put put that that together to bring all these these uh, diverse candidates together who have a lot of different perspectives and say if you will elect me I will be the person who brings this party and transitions it to the next generation. Yeah, to, to Sadiq's point, one of the most striking things about Super Tuesday for me was that Joe Biden won in a lot of these states where, uh, it, according to exit polls at least, people preferred Medicare for all to something more of a you know expanding Obamacare plan that that Biden mm-hmm. supports. So it was just interesting. But it came back to this question about whom they thought would have the best chances. There was some fear of Bernie, for sure. There was also a lot of fear of Trump, right? I mean, the, the fear of Trump is at the core of all of this. This is this is the the existential question that Democratic primary voters are facing, and it, it's 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 a fear. It's a it's a it's visceral that they have to figure out some way to get Trump out of office. Now, we started with a field of, you said 27, I thought it was only 24, but you know, who's counting, of, of a diverse field, I mean, a field even more diverse than around this table this morning. It's pretty <laughs> diverse, right? Uh, and yet we end up with these two old white guys, Elizabeth Warren, whom we haven't talked about yet, spoke to this uh, in front of with the reporters in front of her house, uh, yes, the, two days ago. Gender in this race, you know, that is the trap question for everyone. Uh, if you say, yeah, there was sexism in this race, everyone says whiner. And if you say, no, there was no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? Um, I promise you this. I'll have a lot more to say on that subject later on. <laughs> and you know she will. Oh, I mean, you know, look, I think... Barbara Lee said, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, it's disgusting that <laughs> yeah. they're two old white guys. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the fact that we can think about this and say, like, in 1972, Shirley Chisholm made it to the floor, and Elizabeth Warren didn't even make it to the floor of the convention. And I think that's a real shame. And when we talked about sort of the hopes when we started this race... Julian Castro, Cory Booker, you know, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Kristen Gill, like this was a diverse field and we came back to what we know. And I think this is, I think one of the problems that Elizabeth Warren had, this electability conversation is always going to kneecap certain kinds of people who are not viewed as the prototype of a leader. And in this particular moment, when people feel like there's so much at stake, taking a risk on a woman, right? A woman lost last time. Right. I mean, I think that's a sex a sexist thing to say because so many of these men are losers, right? Like Joe Biden is not a winner, right? In this level, he's never made it this far, and he is yeah. still considered to be credible. When we are looking at all of these women, I do think there is something there. So, what does Elizabeth Warren do now? She, unlike the other leading candidates, did not immediately make an endorsement. Well, I think What'd she's she got take? she's got a lot more leverage mm-hmm. over Joe Biden than she does over Bernie Sanders. You know, it would be nice if uh, she endorsed Bernie, uh, but he doesn't necessarily need it. At least they're in the same you know same lane of voters. It would be more of a surprise if she endorsed Joe Biden, just because they agree on fewer things. They've had these battles over the years over uh, you know bank bankruptcy laws, 
Um, so I, I think for her, as she's going forward, what she wants to maintain is her ideas. Some of the most, you know, ide- the best ideas she put forward in the campaign so far. You know, Sadiq, in uh, kind of teeing you up here, but over the last 24 hours, I've been trying to figure out myself, what, what do you expect Elizabeth Warren to do? And I don't recall in any of the debates where she and Biden really went after each other or where she really went after Biden. Or am I... The the substantial share of debate time was spent ignoring Joe Biden. Um, there were a couple of cases earlier on when Kamala Harris decided to take on yeah, Joe Biden yeah. mm-hmm. as a front runner. But most of that field did not think but Joe she, Biden would come out. But she went after Bernie famously. You know, you lied, right? And mm-hmm. she went after Bloomberg, or vicious. I mean, effectively, let's say. Right, but, right. Joe uh, Biden, for most of the last few months, looked like the wounded animal on the field, and nobody yeah. was going to go and, and so what take do you think him she for does? It. Who do you think she do you think she endorses at all? Uh, I I don't know. I, I agree with Igor that, that this is a, an opportunity for her to actually exert leverage over the party. Just seeing her in the final uh, final week of her campaign, speaking up about certain issues, even the, the ones before us right now with coronavirus and the economic r- response to it, she has been, I think, the boldest among uh, Democrats in calling for a forceful response, the kind of thing that uh, would would mirror what we did in the, the stimulus package uh, in the last recession. And those ideas, that the strength of those ideas are what propelled the early stages of her campaign. And she could be the person who still becomes the advocate for so many of those on whether it's healthcare or childcare or so many other policies that she uh, says she's been fighting for her entire life. So Nambi, do you think she would have, if she wants to have the maximum impact, she'd have that more by endorsing Joe Biden than Bernie Sanders? I mean, I think it would be hard for her to endorse a Biden right now because I do think they are very far apart. Um, And I think For people who were dedicated to her, dedicated to her ideas, I think it would not damage her credibility, but certainly I think it would make her look um, less committed. Mm -hmm. So I think she's going to hold off as long as she can um, because I think it gives her more power waiting. All right. So um, this um, little fast uh, pace is not going to slow down at all. Next Tuesday, March 10, we have Idaho, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, and Washington State. Igor, what's your call? Um, I think it's going to be a very good night for Joe Biden. I do. Um, across it, the board. Across the board. Um, you've got some southern states there. Obviously, he's already shown his strength across the south. Uh, Bernie Sanders just recently announced that he was canceling an event in yeah. uh, Mississippi. Mississippi. because, And that, you know, obviously, in terms of strategy, I think it's it's good for him. He needs to focus on Michigan, and that's where he's going. He pulled an offset there in 2016. He won by a small margin. So I, I think it's by no means safe for him this time around. Joe Biden has a lot of endorsements, a lot of support there. Mm-hmm. I, I see read? what Bernie Sanders is doing and has always been doing is building a movement. And he is not going to to quit until June because what he wants to do is go and energize mm-hmm. every possible voter that he can to the movement that he is clearly preparing to hand off to somebody like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. There, there, there are there are there are clear signs that that movement is actually gaining traction, and we just saw it in the the past year. The ideas that Bernie Sanders has been putting forward in prior election cycles are actually seeing uh, intense debate among Democrats. So he is having a, a substantial effect 
on the national conversation. But obviously, elections, uh, primaries are, are built on momentum. And Joe Biden uh, remarkably, magically found the momentum out of uh, all of that wreckage of the Democratic field. And he's got it right now. And it's very hard to see that uh, yeah. changing course. And several have opined that Michigan was sort of could almost decide this nomination. That if Bi were Biden to win Michigan and take it away from Bernie Sanders, there'd well, be no stopping him. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an important one. I mean, the South, I think most people consider to be a sort of lock for Joe Biden. Uh, Michigan, far less certain, but he's going to need those Midwestern states. So if Michigan is 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 into Sanders, I think this is this means that we're back in a race again. It would help. Oh, I see. Right. With yeah. back if it goes to Sanders, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, then Illinois and Ohio following absolutely. a week later. Right. And you've you've got some pretty big states. Uh Florida where Joe Florida. Biden right now is looking very good. And and the thing you've got to realize is that the next major batch of primaries isn't until the end of April, the Acela primary in the northeastern states, where Bernie could potentially do well, but that's a little nearly two months away. So then this is all leading up, of course. <clears throat> to the convention, and we haven't talked really about the delegate count, but Joe Biden's ahead in the delegate count. Again, surprise, surprise. Um, and Senator Sanders had opined before Super Tuesday, um, speaking for himself, that whoever's ahead in the delegate count, even if they don't have enough, if they have a plurality and they go into the convention, you can't take it away from that person, namely him. He was asked about it again this week. If at the end of the day, it turns out that Vice President Biden is going to have more delegates than you do heading into the convention, will you drop out? Of course, I'll drop out. He will win. I mean, you will we'll run through. I suspect we will run through the uh, process. I think people have a right to vote. But if Biden walks into the convention or at the end of the process has more votes than me, he's the winner. And that's true with whether or not he has a majority or just a plurality. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> I mean, you can't walk it back now. You've said it. You've said it multiple times. I mean, I think, I think, and this, and I think this is better than the whole "they stole it from me" argument. I think you said this in a debate when you were ahead, um, and you have to keep that same energy now that you are now nipping at Joe Biden's heels. So I don't think he can walk it back. So fair and square. I, I think you know it'll probably all, go all the way to the convention oh, yeah. absolutely what yeah. what i think is it for all of bernie sanders talk about taking on the establishment and how he's going to put on a revolution he does have a pragmatic side to him that he's he does not show off very much and this being one of those times is there uh, it, well there is certainly this fear so do you, do you believe the fear that a lot of democrats have that the bernie people will not vote for joe biden will just stay home even when Donald Trump, the, the issue is Donald Trump getting another four years. Do you think that's realistic fear or do you think in the end they'll all come together? I, there is evidence that there will be Bernie voters who don't go and back Joe Biden. We have evidence from uh, Even against Donald Trump. E even against Donald Trump. But it, 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 it's understandable that when you have divisions that, uh, that powerful that um, some are not going to come on board. But I, I do think the, the vast majority will come on board and uh, hold their nose and vote how, how they need to vote because uh, they, they, they recognize uh, among liberal, uh, the liberal wing of Democrats what needs to happen. Right. Um, before we move into um, the coronavirus, I do let's not leave politics until we take a quick look at the U.S. Senate. Uh, breaking news yesterday that Steve Bullock, whom, who 
made an attempt, governor of Montana, made an attempt to run for president, maybe waited too long to get in, has now changed his mind and said, I think I'm going to run for Senate instead. I talked to a couple of uh, elected officials from Montana last night at the Capitol who said he's definitely in. Does that change the equation, make it uh, more likely that Democrats might be able to regain control of the Senate? What's your take? I mean, it's certainly the best news story for them this week. And uh, in, in terms of trying to take the Senate, it's one more state that they would they would have a chance at winning, if at, at least of forcing Republicans to spend ungodly amounts of money to defend that seat. Um, and I think uh, it, even if Bullock gets in, it's going to be tough for him. It's Montana. It's a red state. And it's a presidential cycle, meaning that Trump voters will mm-hmm. turn out more than, than a, than a, than a uh, midterm election. Right. Uh, so he's doing, Amy, what uh, Stacey Abrams did not do in Georgia, disappointing a lot of people. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think Stacey Abrams has been um, active for a number of reasons. I think Georgia was a little more complicated in a, in a different kind of way. I mean, thinking mm-hmm. about the, the voter suppression in that state. So I think that was a, an obstacle. But certainly, um, you know, it, it is it's going to be a hard road. Um, to make that sale, but at least Bullock is popular. He's a two-termer uh, governor. So I think he has some favorables that uh, Abrams didn't have in a place like Georgia, yeah. which is notorious. And so deep Democrats are looking at Maine, certainly, yes. in Colorado with Cory Gardner, Iowa, Joni Ernst, now Montana. Um, yeah, I hear a lot about Alaska, too. I mean, what do your people there at Politico tell you? <laughs> Look, you, you you see a number of these states, whether it's Montana or Arizona or Colorado, Arizona, should and, I mention Arizona? and, and sure. you see plausible figures, establishment figures stepping forward. And it obviously depends on, on what the nation looks like over the, the, the next eight months with coronavirus and all the concerns about the economy. And that, that could uh, create a, a, a shift in in expectations around many of these seats, but it's it's impossible to say right now how close some of those states can get. Right. So mentioning coronavirus, when we all arrived this morning, we were, we were unsure whether we should be shaking hands or not, and certainly not giving each other air kisses, right? <laughs> but, um, because of this coronavirus at this Capitol last night, everybody was bouncing elbows, you know, not shaking hands. Um, and there is a now 205 cases as of yesterday afternoon reported in the United States, 17 states, um, 11 dead. I think I saw one more reported this morning. Um, and Americans are really getting getting concerned, um, which sort of contrasts with what we hear from the president and the White House about how concerned we should be. The president said it's just a matter of uh, not touching certain parts of your body. And I haven't touched my face in weeks. In weeks. Mr. President. I miss it. <laughs> I miss touching my face. Anybody else would be joking. I think he's serious. Um, I... <laughs> and, and then when the uh, Anthony Fauci and the CDC say that the coronavirus could have a 3.4% mortality rate among those infected, uh, the president just dismisses it and says, nah. That's not true. Well, I think the 3.4% is really a false number. Now, this is just my hunch. Just my hunch? (laughs) When we're dealing with the coronavirus. Overall, what do we think about the administration's response to this? You know, we have been hearing 
about Donald Trump and how he talks for three decades in this country and how he's handling coronavirus is not at all different from how he's handled anything else over the last few decades. He does understand how to capture people's attention and their emotions. He does not necessarily care about the specific facts of the case. And this is one of the first times you're seeing that actually collide with a serious public threat uh, that that will have serious implications, um, both from a life and death perspective, but also on the national conversation and our own emotions. This is this is while uh, tragic the number of deaths so far. It's it's tiny. It's tiny compared to so many other threats. Uh, but this has captured all of our attention, and it's forcing us to change our culture in ways that none of us could have imagined two months ago. It's just because, astonishing. Yeah, because I think all of us fear, right, that it's going to get a lot more serious before it gets better. Absolutely. Right? We've all seen those movies where where <laughs> you, you've got that one little red dot and 72 hours later, the entire globe is red. And this is not, that's not how coronavirus spreads. Uh, this is a, a much slower process, but that is that is the thing that we have an image of, and it's it's the the silent threat. It's the thing that's lurking, and you don't know when you're going to get it or how you're going to get it. And Trump is is correct that Ebola was kind of obvious when people got it. This is very yeah. different, and it's it's uh, it's shaking all of us. And it, it really is a time when, I mean, as some people have said this is the first non self inflicted crisis of the Trump administration, but it is a time when like in the Ebola crisis, um, like 9-11, people look to the White House for some sense of confidence and trust. If, if I can be more blunt than Sadiq, I would just say that he has no idea what he's talking about. And the more he <laughs> refrains from talking in public about the, <laughs> the virus, the better. I think the other day he, he suggested to a scientist that, you know, he was asking whether a, a flu vaccine would, would help. Mm -hmm cure somebody from coronavirus, insisting that it would. And, you know, the doctor having to correct him <laughs> in the White House. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is a man who doesn't value public health infrastructure. And I think the implications of coronavirus are more than just how do we treat people once they get it, but how do we prevent things like this from happening again? Because it will happen again. It won't be this, it'll be something else. I mean, things about testing and even thinking about um, being prepared in advance because um, this will have implications for people with other kinds of respiratory illness if there's, say, an outbreak of coronavirus. How do we treat the people who have like chronic respiratory issues and these folks who are going to have coronavirus or may have coronavirus who will need assistance um, with their breathing and other kinds of things? And this speaks to, I think, a failure in our in our public health infrastructure, in our healthcare industry. And he has no answer for that. And this is bigger than just this one moment because I think Sudeep is right. Like, no, most people won't die. It will be, I mean, there are a lot of people who die from the flu and we're not falling out about that. But certainly it raises questions about our preparedness and about these folks in, in the White House who should be thinking about more than just sort of national security in terms of wars and defense, but also thinking about the health and wellness of folks domestically. And these people don't care about this. Donald Trump doesn't care about this. And I, I would just say we, we do have some very smart public health officials who Amen. are Absolutely. able to step Amen. up. They, they will be yeah. the, the heroes of tackling this. Thank God. And uh, <clears throat> we, we, sh we should have confidence that what we are, are 
probably struggling with is these conflicting messages, these kind of just bizarre statements that are, are obviously not helpful. They're, yeah. they're a distraction and riling people up in a way that's that's uh, just not necessary. But it is a signal of the, the threat here. And the president, I think, just there are hints over and over beneath the surface that the president understands the risk here. He can't seem to control himself and how he talks about some of these details, but he understands the risk. He has clearly studied that they may need to, to quarantine cities. He has referenced that in press conferences, which is an astonishing thought that you could have cable news screens, the things that pres the president watches every day, filled with, with footage of, of FEMA tents surrounding cities in America. And that is, that is something that he does recognize and is preparing for. Well, my advice would be, uh, I think to your point, is put Anthony Fauci at the podium and shut up Donald Trump and shut up Mike Pence. And mm -hmm. then, then I think Americans could believe what they're hearing from the which is so important um, at a time like this. Uh, on that point, Igor, thanks, thank you so much, Igor Bobish from HuffPost, Nambi Carter, uh, assistant Professor of Political Science at Howard University, Sudeep uh, Reddy, Managing Editor of Politico. Thank you, guys. Thank uh, you. Great conversation, but we're not going to let you go without uh, some little favorite story in the midst of all of this uh, wild week that we had that caught your attention. Uh, you might want to share with us. Who starts? Um, I'll start. Okay. Staying on topic, my favorite story was uh, the maker, a uh, vodka maker, Tito's. <laughs> Tito's, yes. Um, warning people not to wash their hands with their vodka or vodka in general <laughs> because it will not be enough to kill off the coronavirus uh, because it requires 60% alcohol and their vodka is only 40% alcohol. This was actually <laughs> my favorite story of the week. I had, I, I was just stunned by it because it was the combination of uh, of of the, the brand moment for social media. But also there, there are these people at and a vodka company who were sitting there at a Twitter screen just replying to everybody saying, please don't do this. This right. is not an actual thing you well, can do. Well, how many do. people wash their hands with vodka to begin with? Well, when, when, when the hand sanitizer is out at the out. store <laughs> and you, you, you're in a panic. Why this not is, soap and water? That's, you know, you're asking questions. That makes sense. <laughs> well, it's floating around online, too, as a, sanitize, a hand sanitizer stand-in because people are buying it vodka. like crazy. I yeah. get maybe it's something you do at a bar. You think you could do that, but just just get some sanitizer or go to the bathroom and get some soap. It's yeah. But but like th this is this is where our our national conversation is just going off the rails and you're thinking is that this is just a taste of what's to come if this gets worse. Is there any 60% vodka that we should be washing our hands with? I think there is. Yeah. Oh. Well, right. you know, if you want to come back to my college days and uh, <laughs> I can educate you. <laughs> We'll, we'll make sure we get a question to Dr. Fauci to see which which brand of alcohol works for cleaning your hands. I think we hands. should ask someone with the name of Igor which brand of vodka. Do you <laughs> Back to your roots. Right. Um, you have a favorite story that's not doesn't uh, uh, yes, relate that to vodka? Yes, it's not vodka related. Um, so one um, is, is about Honeypot, which is a company created by a black woman. It's a natural hair care company that was attacked online. The store brand is now in Target and put out a commercial and said, you know, the success of this brand means that other girls who look like me will be successful. And she was attacked online as being racist. And this is horrible. And her reviews went down. But then 
black women mobilized and not only not just black women other women bought her products and raised her her um online rating and it restored my faith in the power of social media to actually do some good um in the world so that was one and also virginia talking about banning hair discrimination which i also think is really important when you're talking about that same segment of the population yeah all right very good well my favorite story is american samoa i give credit (laughs) i give credit to our good friend um uh, from um, Seitz, uh, Alex Seitzwald from NBC, who's a regular member of our panel, who did raise the question whether or not Michael Bloomberg spent the equivalent of the GNP of American Samoa to win American Samoa. And not quite, but almost he did. <laughs> and of the $500 billion that he spent, he had seven full-time staffers in uh, American Samoa. They ran television ads... <laughs> targeted radio ads and targeted digital and print ads for a population of 55,000. And he won, of course, with 49% of the vote, which turned 49.9% of the vote, which turned out to be 175 actual voters. So, <laughs> the Bloomberg <laughs> stimulus package, it will be remembered forever. <laughs> it is indeed. But I love that fact that I don't know how much that turns out to be for somebody uh, Somebody who has better math skills than I could I mean, I mean, had Super Tuesday gone a different direction and Joe Biden didn't do as well as he did, it it might have made a difference. So, you know, we could have been having a different conversation about American Samoa. <laughs> Again, thank you guys for a, a great debate this morning. So uh, let, me, let me wrap up with my parting shot, which I always add is uh, my parting shot only and not necessarily the opinions of our panelists. But I got to say, I've been around politics a long time. And yet I've never seen anything like it. None of us have anything like the total upheaval of a presidential race in four days or less. Suddenly, who was up is down, who was out is in, and who was dead is very much alive. And the crazy Democratic primary, which started out as the most crowded and most diverse field ever, 27 men, women, younger, older, gay, straight, white, black, Asian, Latino, has boiled down to a two-man race between two old white men. Though they'd never admit it, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders do agree on a lot of the same goals. They just differ on how far and how fast they'd go to get there. But, you know, this contest for the Democratic nomination, in my opinion, will not be decided on differences in policies. It will be decided on one issue only. Which one has the best chance of beating Donald Trump? And so far, Joe Biden seems to hold the winning hand. Bernie promised a new promised a new wave of enthusiastic young voters. I wish, but so far it hasn't happened. Yes, there was a huge surge of new vo- new voters on Super Tuesday, but they turned out to vote for Joe Biden. So it looks like he's the one that can unite Democrats of all stripes to get out and vote to deny Donald Trump a second term. Which is why I cast my Super Tuesday ballot for Joe Biden. And that's my parting shot for today. Thanks again to our panelists. Thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, And don't forget, we really want you to be there for every podcast. So you need to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Please do so by going to wherever you're listening to this podcast. Pull up the Bill Press Pod. Click on subscribe. And then tell your friends to do the same thing. That way we'll be sure to see you next time. 
next time, stay strong. Next time, right here on the Bill Press Pod.